Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm Akemini. I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. But where is Michelle? I mean, really, where is she? (laughs) Where is Michelle? Well, you know what? We know that you all are missing, missing, missing Michelle at this point. Um, And she actually did give us an update that I want to push over to you all and let you know that she is um, still continuing to, of course, fight the good fight. She is currently in training to serve as the co-chair of St. Louis's Action Council, harmonizing protest work with building Black political power in St. Louis. And she is also preparing for a hearing after an abusive arrest by the, at the hands of the St. Louis police. So lift her up and lift up the other um, activists and freedom fighters who have also been um, targeted by the St. Louis police. So that is where our sister is, and we are holding her down in prayer um, and giving strong support to her. So, um, but as usual, um, in her stead, we always have somebody else at the table, <laughs> and, and uh, we are honored to have um, Mrs. Laura Pritchard here with us today. How are you, Laura? I'm good, good, and so glad to be here too. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit at the table with little old us. Um, And to our listeners, we want to let you guys know a little bit more about Laura. Uh, Now, Laura is a 20-year veteran staff member at Madison Square Church. She started as the director of team ministries, then became the director of outreach, seeking to help Madison reach out to the community to build relationships, create collaborations, and most importantly, lead people to Christ. Amen. And she now serves as the director of multicultural living and has participated in many of the racial reconciliation initiatives at Madison, like Come Together, Diversity Trainings, Institutes for Healing Racism, and Breakfast Club. Now, Laura is currently pursuing a degree in ministry leadership at Cornerstone University and as a certified anti-racism trainer and organizer since 2004, Laura has a passion for seeing the body of Christ live out the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be one as he and the father are one so that the world may see and know that God sent Jesus to save the world. Now, after marrying her beloved husband, Henry Pritchard, who is from Monrovia, Liberia in 2013, she has, um, gained a deepened understanding of systemic injustice that is um, global. So thank you so much, Laura. Welcome to the table. Thank we are honored to have you here. Me. I'm honored to be here. Hey, Miss Laura. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, we just, we, we, we first, the first part of the series, uh, you know, we're making our way through the series, right? With first part of the series, multi-ethnic churches, a foretaste of heaven, or bulwarks of white supremacy, you know, it was a, it was just three of us just talking, you know, about our experiences. Mm-hmm. But we're like, you know, what? we need people who are who have been in this longer yeah. uh, yeah. than yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> running it. Sometimes we grow a little pain and weary, but we running nonetheless. I know that's <laughs> right. right. I know that's right. So we were like, we need to pull on some people that have actually been doing this, who've been running for Jesus, yeah. you know, and maybe their feet are tired, mm-hmm. but hey, their souls at rest. Mm-hmm. And so you are that person. Yeah, <laughs> so, praise God. 
Yes. So tell us a little bit about just your um, your background, how you came to Christ, and okay. and just how you ended up um, in this in this ministry. Okay. Um, dedicated to multi ethnic churches. Sure. So, well, my faith story. I'm you know I'm in my fifties, so that's a long story. But I didn't necessarily. <laughs> so, young woman. Young. I'm gonna make it short though. Uh, <laughs> I didn't grow up in the church necessarily. Um, I started mm-hmm. going to church kind of by accident, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I would spend a night at one of my friends' homes when I was in middle school, actually. So up through middle school, I didn't have a church um, history per se, except to go to church with my grandmother every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but if I was going to st- uh, stay at my girlfriend's house, we had to go to church. And so that's how I got introduced to like church and the word and those folks at that church, even though my, you know, my mother didn't take us, even when I didn't stay with my girlfriend, they would pick my, my, me and my siblings up wow. to come to church every Sunday. Mm. Um, and God is so amazing because at the same time that he was pulling us in without us knowing he was pulling my mother in wow. because, um, her, one of her coworkers, Moved to our city, and I, I grew up in uh, Muskegon Heights, Michigan, small African-American community. This woman moved to Muskegon from Chicago. She was witnessing to my mother, happened to start to, happened to start to come to our church, and it was through her testimony and God's work that my mother became a Christian when I was 16, um, 15 or 16, and about a year later, I came to know Christ. Um, I came to know Christ in a small African-American church that was really a non-denominational really heavy on teaching and preaching the word of God. So the word itself has always been really important to me. Um, and it's funny because I think about this. Um, they used to describe our church as the little white church. Y'all, they would say, y'all don't act like regular black churches. And I actually think even in those moments, God was setting me up to be where I am today. Um, because of just the way that I grew up in the faith, um, the way I started in the faith. And then I left my little non-denominational church when I went away to school. I went to a uh, very strong black Baptist church. Then I was in a, uh, a black Baptocostal church. Right. I know about right? that. Right. And, um, <laughs> and then, you know, so I had this whole full spectrum. And even um, when I moved here to Grand Rapids in the mid 80s, I was like checking out everybody's church. You mm-hmm. know, wherever somebody mm-hmm. was teaching or preaching, I was trying to be there. Um, and I had this, I've always had, since I accepted Christ as a teenager, like a fire for God. Um, it wasn't, I guess I would say, and this is, I don't, I want you to hear my heart that mediocrity in Christ wasn't enough for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just, you know, my some of my cohorts, they had grown up hearing these stories about, you know, John the Baptist and Samson and the lion. And I hear these stories and I go, what? And so (laughs) amazing, amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm 16, 17. And God is just getting more and more real to me. Um, Now, I did have a moment um, when I was uh, 19 years old. My mother died Mm -hmm. and she Mm -hmm. was the only parent in our home. And so that did shake me. That, you know, shook sure. my faith. Um, but even when I would walk away <laughs> from God, he'd always pull me back. Always, always. So mm-hmm. I've had this life of, um, I would say ups, ups and downs. And I would say, you know, um, I tell people I've gone, I think, to the school of hard knocks first. Um, and that's why I'm 55 years old and finishing a degree that I started, um, really when I was 18, when my mother got sick. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm going back to school to do what I believe God has called me to do. Um, and so probably, well, about 20 or so 
odd years ago, um, I left my Baptocostal church and um, was looking for another place. There was things that happened. I went through a, a divorce and abusive marriage, um, mm. things like that. And, and, uh, and so I didn't, because my ex-husband was in that space, I didn't feel safe there. So I found I was looking for another space to feel safe. Yeah. And I, you mm-hmm. know how sometimes you feel like life is just chaotic. So there was a sense of chaos, right, in my life. And so when I go to this multi-ethnic church, I'm not thinking about multi-ethnicity. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. trying to find a peaceful place in Jesus. <laughs> I'm just trying to come back to Jesus and sit down and let him do some work right. in me, right? So I walk into this church on Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. um, 1992. And uh, this white man is preaching, and he's preaching the word, and the word just it grips me. And there's peace mm. there. I, I find peace, and I and Jesus is right there with me amongst all these white folks. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I think this is the place I'm supposed to be. And <laughs> I remember saying to the Lord, oh, "But the music got to be right, Jesus. If the music ain't right, I don't know if we're gonna do this, uh, no. right?" So, <laughs> That's right. So I went and uh, praise God for the the African American praise and worship lead. I said, Jesus, I'm home. Oh, so the music God. was right. The word was There's right. A ram in the bush. Right. I thank God for him too. He didn't know God was preparing him for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I I found my home. Um, oh. Now, when I first started going there, probably the first year, I just kind of sat. And I'm, I'm pretty, when I'm in church, I'm very active. I love serving God. And I remember um, one Sunday, an African-American sister came to me and she said, Laura, we've got this ministry where we reach out to girls in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood around our church is um, a poor African-American community. She says, most of the volunteers are white and those girls need to see us. She said, won't you, won't you come join the team? I was like, yeah. And, uh, that, that's where my journey of ministry and ministry in the multicultural environment and even understanding that I was in a multicultural environment and God had called me for a specific purpose in the multicultural environment. That's where it began is when I started that work with a team of a mixed team, mixed race team of black and white women working with kids, um, from our neighborhood around the church. Mm. It started there. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, wow. thank you and so I know, I know, Laura, you have, you've been putting in work for a long time yes, <laughs> at yes, this local yeah. church. And I just want to say on a side note, you know, I, I get the privilege of seeing lots of anti-racism, multicultural trainers all around this country. And mm-hmm. even, even globally, I've seen all kinds of folks and, uh, don't be fooled by um, by this by this modest demeanor. She is a powerhouse of an anti-racism training. I'm just talking about a really authentic skill set, and I've seen some outstanding folks. And Laura Pritchard is the bomb. I mean, she can say real hard things filled with lots of love, and she takes people uh, a really really deep deep journey, a real honest journey. But she walks with them the whole the whole time. So. It's a, it's a real beautiful work to witness. So um, so I know that that didn't happen overnight. No. That ability to uh, walk with people mm-hmm. in hard places and hold up mirrors mm-hmm. to people, particularly around issues about racism. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, in, in that bio there that you are an anti-racism trainer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about yes. what mm-hmm. does that mean? Is that just like kumbaya or is oh, that something no. different? No, no. Uh, kumbaya it really kind of is it's an adjutant for me um, because it's mm-hmm. so... Um, 
I think there's something to relationship and there's something to loving each other, certainly. But as I say often, if we are simply holding hands and singing Kumbaya and loving on each other, like I experience in my church all the time, but we don't address the systems of, of white supremacy, the systems of racism and those and, 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 and accept the idea that racism is baked into the very fabric of our society. If we as Christians, don't believe that and begin to address that, then our work is, it's, it's ineffective. It is, it's shallow and it, it, and it only goes so far and it is frustrating. I think it's frustrating to the spirit of God, if you will. And I know it's frustrating, mm. especially to those of us who are, who are oppressed by those systems. So to be an mm. anti-racist is to want to be one who really fights against, um, the sin of racism, those principalities and powers, right? So going beyond the kumbaya and because of the kumbaya, we're going to work to dismantle what lives in the fabric of our society. That's good. That's good. Thank you. You speak in my language right now. <laughs> I mean, really, the three of us at the table were all anti-racist. Yes. So it's like this is this is a space that we live yes. in, like yes. every episode. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, thank you for uh, for for bringing that. You're right. I mean, we have to we have to latch on. We have to be lovers of truth, yes. no matter how ugly mm-hmm. it is, no matter how beautiful mm-hmm. it is, right? Yes. Um, and so, uh, so what would you uh, say? What are the ways that you in your work, have you observed maybe uh, these systems, right? These racist systems and structures uh, manifesting themselves, maybe even even in multi-ethnic churches, whether they be consciously fighting, you know, to actually be that mm-hmm. or whether they're that on paper, mm-hmm. right? Um, what are some ways that you've seen these, you know, maybe those oppressive systems manifest themselves within the four walls of the church? Okay, so, Wow. Uh, you know, we can talk about what's traditional worship. Um, mm-hmm. We can talk about what's high church. I mean, it's mm-hmm. things as simple as um, I'm a, I'm on a worship team. I'm one of the worship leaders at our church. Um, every song that we project, um, because we're trying to do things in a righteous way, has to have a CCLI license and number assigned to it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the black gospel, especially the old school gospel that we sing, there's no CCLI designation. Mm-hmm. So then you got to fight about, can you see it? Should it be projected? I don't know. And that seems small, but it's frustrating over years and months mm-hmm. when you see that even beyond the walls of your church within um, the Christian world and society, again, there are always these walls or even just being dismissed or not acknowledged, right? Um, mm-hmm. when I talked to my pastor about this, that we had preaching classes and it would rather irritate me because the preaching classes were his way of raising up multi-ethnic leaders, especially you have folks my age, a little younger, a little older, who feel called to ministry, who don't necessarily have a seminary degree, um, and yet he and he wants to get them on a fast track of learning. He sees the gift. He wants to pour into the gift. And yet when we're in those preaching classes, I'm saying, Pastor, you keep bringing these theologians, these white theologians in the room. Come on now. I know there's got to be some brown, some black theologians that know and can teach us about the word of God. Help me. You know, and those are things that you don't really think of. But I need to know the, the information, the, the 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 digging of the word, that I can get it from folk that look like me. Right? Yeah. Um, and when we even talk about, <laughs> in my 20 or so years at Madison, I've seen a lot of uh, black folk, African Americans, come and go. 
mm-hmm. the staff. Uh, and one thing we've been wrestling with is our human resource standards and policies. One of my white allies said, um, when you look at human resource policies, they always lean in favor of the institution. And if they're leaning in mm. favor of the institution, that means they're leaning in favor of whiteness. And if that's mm. happening, then mm. it's not going to honor or support people of color as it should. But people of color, and, and that's kind of, it's kind of difficult for me to break down, if you will, but we work, we serve in a, in a white church. And so even the policies, the procedures, the way we be leans in favor of whiteness, right? Um, we talk about the way um, a multi-ethnic church, as Emerson describes it, is a church that is at least 20% other, right? Um, so when that 20% other starts to push up against the status quo of whiteness, those unseen uh, things that are normal... Then you really start to feel uh, where white supremacy lives, and you can't actually see it or touch it, but you can feel it. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense, right? Mm-hmm. We talk, we call it the wall of whiteness. That sometimes we feel as people of color that we're bumping our head up against the wall of whiteness. So I think in the way that we, the way that we be, and our policies, what we regard as credible, um, whose voice is credible. Um, how, um, even something as simple as time, my goodness. Um, you know, how long should the worship service be? What does listening to the spirit look like? Um, you know, the whole, you know, the fluidity of time and what the way one culture views time against another. All those things live in the structure of the church and help to shape how we live in the structure of the church. I often find myself, I would find myself over the years, Wondering, am I crazy? Because these people are saying, let's do something one way. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but there's other ways we can do this. But I was often the lone voice because for many years, I was the only person of color voice at the table. Um, yeah. Hmm. Mm. No, that's good, Laura. That's good. I think, I think in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you're speaking to, really cultural orientation, yes. right? And mm-hmm. and if you're in dominant culture, you just don't, you don't see it because you don't mm-hmm. have to, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't tap mm-hmm. you on the shoulder or, or, or shake you um, the way that other folks who are not in dominant culture, the way in which they experience it. Right. So we've got, we've got a lot of folks in, you know, uh, your church, for example, has been around for a, a number of mm-hmm. years. We've had different movements within the multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement over the last maybe 60 years or so, maybe even 100 years, you mm-hmm. think about the Pentecostal movement setting it off in some ways. Mm-hmm. But it goes through these different cycles, these different trends. And um, and it seems like what we have right now uh, is what I would say is le- levels of gentrified mm-hmm. <laughs> multicultural church movement, right? Mm-hmm. A return to mm-hmm. a return to the city, the saving mm-hmm. of the city, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I listened to a talk with uh, Professor Ra recently kind of drilling down on that, right? I just heard that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, can you share with us a little bit about how, how we might be able to think rightly about living uh, in a Christianly way within the city without being gentrifiers of the city. Do you know what I mean? I, I think so. so churches yeah. that are planted in, and, and I know where your church is located, mm-hmm. right? So they're pr- planted in what we would call like the urban core mm-hmm. within a, a, 
our city's context. And how do how do you live there um, as a real resident, as a real neighbor, and not an occupier or a gentrifier? Right. One of the things that I we pressed on this summer, we we have a, a neighborhood prayer team, and they go out into the neighborhood and meet folks and pray with folks. Well, the, <laughs> the first thing that we really pushed on was when we send these teams out as much as we can, we try to be. We try to send out mixed race teams. So even there's a look Mm -hmm. of there's not just these white folk coming out to save the day, right? But you also, I think, have to change the mind and the heart of the people going out. Mm -hmm. And so we started this, our our going out with the acknowledgement of our poverty and our neediness Mm -hmm. and recognizing that we need, we are all in need of a Savior. And were it not for the Savior, you know, where would we be? So identifying with the people to whom we were going to serve. But I think also seeing ourselves as participants in the community with the people and not um, saviors of the people, if you will, right? So where do we look for the assets? And I'm now I'm kind of talking about uh, Christian community development. Right, right. You know, where do we find the assets? Who are the leaders? Who's got something already going on in ministry that we can join? Um, and so we don't come in fixing stuff up, pushing <laughs> folks out. Um, we are really about listening, learning, and living with people versus going in to save their day. Because I got to believe that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, if you will, Mm -hmm. is working in that community already before we get there. So let's see where he's working and see who's doing his work and join them. So we see ourselves as needy. We see ourselves as um, uh, my reformed brothers would say as totally depraved Mm -hmm. with everybody. (laughs) And then we all we go in there with them kind of actually with our hands out ready to receive what God has for all of us, our ears open, um, and ready to work with the folks in the community. Um, and I, I feel like um, and there's been pockets of doing that, identifying folks on different streets who are who are leaders, folks who are already, one woman, she has a prayer walk already happening on her street, but we join her prayer walk. Um, we got a group of women coming now called the Gospel Divas, and they and they have now set up a, a, a or setting up a, a food co-op, right? So, so that's the other thing. We used to have a food pantry, and we do still have the pantry, but we're in many ways trying to transition our pantry to a co-op. So there's this sense of joint ownership. Right. We even did something as simple as years ago. Um, we noticed that when we were giving food away in the pantry, all the receivers were black or Latin or African, and all the givers were white. And so we began to think, well, what if the folks coming in actually began to serve other folk coming in? And that was an interesting conversation. I'll never forget one person said to me, but what if they steal the food? I said, well, Lord, have mercy. What if we just keep giving them the food? They don't have to steal it. <laughs> Hello. And Hello. then and they can begin to use their gifts to serve other folk. I'm, I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy on us. So just simple things. How do we be with and how do we recognize, I think, what folks are bringing to the table? And really it's about how do we see mm. Jesus in them? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That is good. How do yeah, how do we see mm. Jesus in them? How 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 is that image of God um bearing witness, you know, to uh the reality yes. of Christ. 
uh, who is overall and who created them. Yes, exactly. That? Uh, that's good. Uh, how would you, uh, you know, that, that just the whole idea of kind of like this whole modern day colonialism, yes. as I call it, um, with a lot of these uh, church planting mm-hmm. movements. Is there anything that um, maybe is cons- concerning for you about um, this? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saying it properly or uh, phrasing it the best. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that, um, and this is this is not like a movement that's taken over the entire American church. But in certain segments within evangelicalism, this seems to be somewhat in vogue um, or trend. The push for multi ethnic churches. Um, it's been going on for a couple of years, where there's just been this very high push mm. for this, probably since about the '90s or so. Now, is there and and it's continuing in 2000s and whatnot, but is there anything that concerns you um, about uh, this movement? Uh, is there, yeah, any any cautions, anything, since you're one that's been in this work, you know, before was the hot stuff in the street. Um, is there is there anything that's like, kind of like, eh, I'm a little concerned about this, or this is kind of, you know, this is something I'm kind of keeping my out for because, you know, of, I don't know, X, Y, Z. So any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I think um, for... For white people, I think uh, I've had over the years a lot of white people say, "I want to be, um, I, I want my whatever to be multi ethnic." So my church, um, I don't think they understand what they're asking for when they say that. Um, the mm. price that they will have to pay, um, what they will need to give up, and what they will need to see that they don't see. The invisibility of their yeah. supremacy has to be made vi- mm. visible to them, and they've got to be willing to see it humbly um, and respond to it in a godly way. So to know that it's mm. kind of like when people, you know, everybody want to get married. <laughs> well, you know, when yeah. you get married, you got to lay down your life like every day. Yeah, pre- okay. preach to me, Lord. Right now. <laughs> I'm trying to preach. So, I'm mm-hmm. the single one on the table. Right, right, right. And I only been married four years, my dear. So I'm gonna tell you this. I'm still happily newly wedded, but I know that this is a it's a there's a price to pay, right? Mm. So sure. when you want to do this multicultural, multiracial, multi ethnic thing, especially as white people. There's going to be a price to pay. There's going to be, you're going to lose some things. And there's got to be a willingness and even a wanting to do it. I think about, um, you know, when we've had these issues around, uh, there was Charlottesville and all these other issues that happen. And we, as, as particularly black folks, are feeling some kind of way. And we need to express mm-hmm. that feeling on Sunday morning. Right. So I'm leading worship Sunday and we may read a liturgy or we may pray a prayer or we may just we may just say I'm hurting and I'm in pain right now. And then after service, somebody comes to me and asks me, why will I politicize the platform? Oh, goodness. Mm, mm, mm. I'm lamenting my pain. Mm, Right. I'm lamenting. This has nothing to do with politics. But see there, that's where the whiteness gets in the way. Um. Perhaps fragility. Mm-hmm. And so they've got to be aware of that knapsack they carry. They got to be aware of what they bring into the room and the, what it will cost them. Now, I would also say um, to people of color, especially when we're in the minority, which oftentimes we yes. are, we have to make sure um, mm. we don't, we can't give up. 
And it almost brings tears to my eyes because this work is so hard on us. It's, it's, and, and especially if you got an 80-20 ra- ratio, them little 20% going to be getting called to about a 80% of the stuff. So you're physically tired, you're emotionally tired, and you're spiritually tired. So for the people of color, you've got to have a collective. you got to have a place of uh, where you can be fed and fueled and, and encouraged that you're not crazy. Uh, and, and, you know, where Hebrews talks about let's not give up meeting together, you know, that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. Mm-hmm. People of color have got to do that and cannot feel guilty about doing that in majority white spaces. And then we also have to have to have the courage to assert our voice, not just individually, but realize the power of the collective. Yeah, and the institution has got to be willing to hear the individual voices and the voices of the collective. So we cannot diminish our voice, nor can we get lost in whiteness. Because I, I, I was reading, so I, can't, I wish I could remember the article. It may have been Camacho, but I, it, may, it may be a different article where they talked about how uh, people of color in multiracial churches that, is, that are predominantly white, that they where they begin to even take on the psyche, if you will, of that of their, their white counterpart. So... They don't want to talk about race. Yes. They don't want to deal with race. Let's just all get along and we don't want to, you know, rock the boat. So we've got to make sure that we hold on to our voice, um, that we encourage one another and that we don't get lost in it. That's so good, Laura. Actually, that leads into what I was just about to ask you. How exactly do you bring along, you know, our mm. cousins? Let's just, I'm going to call them our, our cousins. <laughs> Other people of color, but I'm talking about black folks right now because we black. I'm so, but other people of color too. But how do we bring them along? The ones who are like, you know what? Look, I'm just, I'm in this space. I like the word. I like the liturgy. I like that they baptizing my baby. You know, like, cause you know, we're reformed. And so how, I mean, what do you, what do you do? How do you bring them along? So you can have that collective voice because there is power yes. in unity. Um, and there is chaos and discord. And that's what the yes. enemy wants. Um, cause he's been a liar from the beginning. And so how, how is it? How, how, how do we bring our cousins along who are like, uh, I'm right. good. I'm chilling. I don't want. <laughs> exactly. That. Yeah. I live with that, my dear. Uh, I think, mm. man, I actually was just praying about that last night regarding a particular person in my church mm. and I was praying, God help me, um, help me to reach them again. I feel like at some point they were pouring out their lament um, and I think there were some things that happened in their ministry and work that really discouraged them. And they've kind of retreated uh, into this isolated space. Mm. And I see them every Sunday, but they're just riding the tide now. They're not they're not going to engage. They're not going to take a risk. And so I'm, I'm saying mm. because here's the other issue. You know, we've got this internalized stuff. Racist op- oppression is what we call it, where. Uh, we have this crab in the barrel syndrome, right? We have this lack of trust amongst ourselves. You guys, I think we're talking about colorism mm-hmm. on one of the episodes, and then that comes into play, right? And then, and and uh, as yeah. one African American woman told me, "You the golden child now, you know." And so I'm the, you know, you the one that the white folks love. So we don't know if we can trust you. So you got all this stuff operating, uh-huh. right? While folks getting tired, they're being misunderstood, and we need to be building unity amongst ourselves, and we not trusting each other. 
right? So then how, mm-hmm. how do I need to work to build trust, to build camaraderie? Um, one of the things that I'm being pressed about by the Lord is to help people go deeper in their spirituality. Um, I feel like for many of us, um, we lack the spiritual depth, therefore the spiritual roots that we need uh, to help us stand when those winds come. And so when the winds blow, they often blow us away from the rest of the the folk. And we kind of like being over there. Ain't nobody bothering me. Just leave me alone. Mm. So I, I feel like we have to have a willingness with each other to actually go run after each other. Um, to build trust with one another um, and to encourage each other along the way, because I see a whole lot of checked out folks around me and I'm, I'm asking the Mm. Lord. I'm, and I'm actually, I'm in the middle of asking the Lord myself that question. How do I continually help to encourage Mm. these folks and how do I build trust? And I, I can't get personally, Laura, as an employee, I can't get so caught up in my work that I miss ministering to the people. Who should benefit from the work and a primary population right now that I'm really praying about how to minister to is my African, African American brothers and sisters who they tired. Mm-hmm. They're tired. Yeah. They don't want to, let's mm-hmm. not, you know what? I have to talk about this at work Monday through Friday. I got to deal with it when mm-hmm. I go to my child's school. When I come to church, I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to deal with, with this. Let's just pray about it and it'll be all right. Right. And especially, right. you know, you get mm-hmm. older African-Americans. One older brother, I tried to get him to go to a workshop, and, and brother said, you know what? I, I live this. I don't need a workshop about it, mm-hmm. and it's too painful, and mm-hmm. I don't want to start hating these white people I go to church with. So can we not talk about this? Mm-hmm. So you also have that. I'm afraid of what I'm going to feel mm-hmm. if we start to dig too yeah. deep, right? <sighs> so we got to yeah. be sensitive around all of that. That race pain Man, is real deep and very real mm-hmm. and traumatizing. Wow. That shows so much Thank wisdom, really, uh, Laura, mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, mm-hmm. I, the, the spiritual maturity that it takes to just be mindful of the different places that people are on the road mm-hmm. in this journey mm-hmm. um, and that they have to go at their at yeah. the right pace. And we slow down to walk with them yes. and we speed up to catch up with mm-hmm. others and we wait on other mm-hmm. folks, too. And so, um, man, that. I imagine that could be rather draining. So I have, so, so, so I, I, I got, I got one question that just rose up. I had another one I was going to ask you, but let me, let me go to this one first. Talk to us a little bit, uh, dear, dear black woman about, about self care. Self-care Ooh, yes. within Easy. these spaces, because I see that you are, are living out, live, walking in the legacy mm-hmm. of, the strong-backed black woman mm-hmm. who's got a whole lot of people on it. So yeah. tell me how you keep that back strong <laughs> and how you keep yourself healthy, happy, and hopeful mm-hmm. um, as this as this world groans from sure. sin. Well, you know, uh, I came to you, Christina, uh, <laughs> about a, two years ago, and I said, I got a book. We got to work through this book because I got to figure this thing out. Um I feel like I'm still trying to figure that out. As a matter of fact, when I was driving here, I was talking to a sister and she said, Laura, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. And I think we already have this um, persona that we're living into as black women, right? Strength, 
and endurance and we are the ones who we hold the family together um, and we're taking care of everybody else and not taking care of ourselves. Well, I'm a living example of that. I am that. So I can't say that I have Mm. the answer to that, but I know that I hear the spirit of God telling me that you can't serve these folk. You can't continue to run this race that I need you to run if you aren't taking care of yourself. You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Um, I believe there is something to it. And now, there is one thing that I I think I I do well is I seek out companions on the journey, mm-hmm. and I I purposely get with other African American sisters who are on the journey, and we pray with each other, and we laugh, and we cry. Um, we, we make plans and then don't fulfill the plans. And then we call each other together again and say, we're going to try again and we're going to get this thing together. And Jesus going to help us. We ain't giving up, but they are my, we are each other's cheerleaders. And, you know, they're in California. They're right here in Grand Rapids. They're everywhere, but we're together connected by the, by the spirit of God. So one thing I know we need is community, but I know that we have to, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now, develop rhythms and habits of self-care. As a matter of fact, if you look in my journal, oh, actually on my to-do list on my phone, did you make your self-care appointments yet? (laughs) And I keep saying tomorrow, Mm. tomorrow. So for me, for my own self, we have got to develop rhythms Mm. and habits of self-care, of resting and of sitting and listening to the Spirit of God. You know, there is so much for us to do. There is so much for us to do, but God gives us limited capacity and limited time, but he's a limitless God. So we have to trust his limitlessness and be okay with our limitedness and live within the parameters that God gives us and do. Jesus didn't heal everybody. And I have to remind myself of that. He didn't, he didn't heal everybody. So you got to sit down and figure out who are the ones in particular that God wants you to touch and the rest you, you trust to the Lord. And then that leaves room and space for us to take care of ourselves. So we all listen to that. We all know that we sometimes, um, we, we need to hear that like a broken record mm-hmm. until we embody mm-hmm. it, until we fulfill it, right? Yes. So, yeah. so I, I've got another question for yeah, you uh, as we head towards closing out our delightful mm-hmm. time together. <laughs> um, and, mm-hmm. you know, like like I said, there are a number of people who I think are passionate about the idea of multi-ethnic cross-cultural churches mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm not God, so I can't examine their heart, you know. Right. And so let's just say the reasons are, are good ones, right. <laughs> right? But let's say they are absolutely clueless. They don't know where to start. They don't mm-hmm. have a sense of what, what is this supposed to look like? What are some things I need to have in place programmatically yeah. and structurally? Could you just glean from your 20 years of experience mm-hmm. some of the, what you would say are some of those essential building blocks uh, that in programs that churches should have in place that want to take seriously being hospitable, loving, and discipleship making within a multi-ethnic context. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have a I, if you have a white listeners, listenership, but I would say because well, folks, yeah, because typically, <laughs> typically, it's white people that want to that say we want to do this right. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, um, who said that? Oh, uh, Paul D. Uh, is it Paul D. Young hmm. um, in his book? He wrote Radical Reconciliation. It's something de young, and I can't think of his first name. I'm so sorry. But anyway, he mm-hmm. talks about the need for particularly white people who want to um, 
start on this journey to be in an accountable relationship with a person of color. Um, a person of color who will tell you the truth, um, a person of color whom you respect, um, who you either see as your peer or someone that you can look up to. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the first step is that, that level of accountability for that leader of that, the, for the white person to the person of color. I think that it should start with the building of these, um, these racially reconciling relationships, right? We do something called the Breakfast Club, mm -hmm. which we got from a ministry um, out of Chicago. And it's where a white person and a person of color meet monthly for one year. And they meet either over breakfast or coffee. And we send them a set of questions. So they don't just get together and say, let's, we're going to talk about race. What you think? I don't know. So we send, <laughs> we send them questions that kind of direct their conversation. And it also kind of produces a bit of tension and an ability to see and hear about race from these very different vantage points. So you begin to train people to talk about race in a healthy way, one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I think also teaching people and beginning to explore the idea of institutional structural racism, that even as we are uh, loving on each other, singing Kumbaya, having these racial reconciliation moments, workshops, cultural understanding trainings and all of this, we have to understand the the thing that created and perpetuates the division because our reconciliation will only go so far if we only addressed loving each other, but not dealing with the institutions that we live in. And I'm, I'm speaking yeah. this because um, I'm sitting here thinking as I'm talking, I'm speaking this from being in a white, predominantly white church that desires to be uh, multi-ethnic or multi-racial. Mm -hmm. Um, if I were, if I could speak to African-American pastors, I would say in African-American churches, I think there's something, um, blessed about being in relationship with a white church, if you will, to try to build these racially reconciling relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a whole nother, um, dynamic that that I've I've not worked in from in this area but being a black person I think that we have to um be willing to uh speak honestly about our pain um and not be afraid mm -hmm. of our anger and 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 recognize that um when we begin to see more clearly the truth of what the church the Christian church in the U.S. has done to us at black people. Um, there's this awareness. There's this anger. There's this, we don't have to, I don't have, we don't have, need to have anything to do with these folk. Um, but to try to move through that. And I think there's also this dynamic of, especially when you have black church, white church, sometimes, you know, black churches lack the resources that white churches have. And we have to be careful about that dynamic of them giving us stuff and then, us feeling beholden mm. to them and how do you that's a that creates some strange dynamics. So maybe maybe the giving and is reciprocal and you have to be creative to figure out what that looks like. What do you, what does your church and your people bring to the table that can maybe be given to the white folk first? And it ain't just to teach folk. Uh, I, you know, I really get irritated, especially when folks do mission trips and they come. You say, uh, well, how was it? 
And they come back and say, oh, I learned how to live, how to be happy when you have nothing. (laughs) You know, you just, it's a blessing. They know God far better than we do because they, you know, have nothing. Yeah, they're so happy, right? And so I think that there's a wealth of, uh, I think the black church has a wealth of uh, of, uh, endurance um, and a depth of faith, right? And this... uh, capacity to love and be in community that we can teach our, our white counterparts, right? So I think, I think we just need to be, um, yeah. we have to be willing at some level to figure out how do, how do we as black folks, black churches reach out to our white brothers and sisters and prayerfully do that. But knowing that there will be pain and frustration, everybody got to know that. And everybody has to know that everybody going to have to lay something down. And everybody also has to know that we have all been trapped and damaged by the sin of racism. White people's damage comes in this in this mm-hmm. cloak of superiority and, and white power and privilege, mm-hmm. but it is as damaging, that is as damaging and as um it takes them captive in much the same way that the oppressiveness of race, you know, takes us captive as well. So I think if we can come together with those ideas and just saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready to take up my cross. (laughs) I'm ready to deny myself. And actually, if I can, I'm sorry, if I can just say this, we've been praying and wrestling about what does it mean to deny ourselves as people of color? Okay. So when Mm -hmm. I deny myself, Lord, I've been, I'm denying myself every day living in this white world. What do you what do you mean? Mm. I gotta deny some more. I gotta give them more place. Mm. And so then it creates this weird tension. Mm. And that's where you need the Holy Spirit to help you know how to do this. Because quite frankly, I ain't denying myself. I'm finna stand up for myself. Well, how at the same time am I standing up for what I believe is right? Do I deny myself for the sake of the cross and uh for the benefit of the body, mm. if you will? Right? And I always tell people, I always go to Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about um, bearing with one another. And then he talks about making every effort to to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Yes. And that making every effort, that's a, that's the piece that we have to keep in mind. This thing is not going to come easy. Every. And we need to go into mm-hmm. it knowing that. That is good. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was beautiful, beautiful. And <laughs> closed it with the word. Come on, God. And so <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much, Laura. So, I mean, you've, you've said so much and just dropped yeah. so much wisdom on us that we will be chewing on for quite some time. And uh, now it's just time for us to ask you, you know, the million dollar question uh, um, that, that's really undergirding our series, which is, you know, so in your own experience and from your own vantage point, would you say um, that multi-ethnic churches, are they a foretaste of heaven or are they bulwarks of white supremacy? What say you? I think they're both. They're both. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think we get glimpses mm-hmm. of heaven. Um, when I'm leading worship and I look out there and I see people from different races and tribes and nations worshiping God, I'm like, man, this is beautiful, Jesus. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the same time, when I'm leading yeah. worship that same Sunday morning, 
I know somebody's saying, she's saying that tag too many times. Or why do we have to talk about that? <laughs> or or what I'm going to deal with on Monday or Tuesday when I come into the work and into the, the work at the church. And uh, what am I going to have to actually fight about sometimes with the people who I love, mm. who I know love me, and I know we're all loved by God. It's they still we still live in this white supremacy. Um I say it's both. Mm-hmm. It's both. Um the spirit of mm-hmm. God is he's among us, he's working among us, and he's working to tear down those very walls um that we live in. It's the what is it, the already and not yet? Yeah. There it is. Already and not yet. There it is. That's it. There it is. No, yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Lord. That's what we concluded mm-hmm. as well at the table. <laughs> at the table, we concluded that it's also both because yes. we do live in that tension of the already mm-hmm. and not yet. You know, the, the tension of the new age um, having come in Christ, um, but mm-hmm. not fully yet manifested because we are still in this present evil age. So thank you so much for um, having a seat with us at the table. We are honored uh, that we got to just speak to you and glean so much wisdom uh, for you and, and and get a little bit more gas in our tank mm-hmm. so we can keep this on going. This gave me gas in my tank, so thank <laughs> uh, you. Yes, mm-hmm. praise the Lord. Thank God. So yeah, thank you so much. And of course, we want to thank our listeners for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going as usual. Please tweet us your thoughts about our multi-ethnic church series, is it a foretaste of heaven or a bulwarks of white supremacy? You can use the hashtag truth table and send us or tweet us your thoughts. I mean, um, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at truth table or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on the Satchel podcast player. Truth's Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth's Table. Bye, y'all.